listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. I'm Matki Dapp. I'm a writer-director based out of Nashville, Tennessee, although I make stuff everywhere. I'm the writer-director of a feature film called Other Versions of You, as well as several shorts, such as the award-winning Contrary to Likeness, Everyday Yeti, and The New Mr. Princess. Perfect. Welcome, Maki. Thank you so much for joining. And... Uh... Let's just jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. All right. What is the biggest challenge you've overcome as a filmmaker and how did you overcome it? You know, I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and I, I have a few that I kind of want to hit on. So the first thing was just getting films funded. A lot of the times I have made films in the 48-hour film project because you can get a high level of talent, crew, and cast to commit a weekend to make a film. And so that has been – I've made 10 films. 10 of the 22 films I've made were made in that fashion. And to get a film funded is is no small feat. And so – We've used Kickstarter. We've had uh, personal investors. We've, you know, just we've sold cookies and blood, and um, you know, <laughs> some people have. Uh, no, I won't go to that. No, but we, you know, the, it, getting a film funded is 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 a feat, and so that was probably one of the biggest challenges ever was to get that the latest feature film that we did, other versions of you to get that actually funded and made, uh, took a long time with a lot of people working on it. And so uh, that was a big one. I think another one was, was moving from friend crews to professional crews. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes the friend crews turned into the professional crews because you're building and working together and you're building a craft and everybody is raising their game and their level. Uh, but then to move on to a point where professional crews want to work with you and not just your buddies uh, was is pretty great mm-hmm. and uh, was was nice to to see. Uh, another thing is getting noticed outside of my bubble, you know. And and right now I kind of consider my bubble Nashville, at least from a narrative standpoint. From a director standpoint, I do I do much more work in the Midwest than I do in. Nashville, which is a bummer and something I constantly try to alleviate. But for whatever reason, there's just more work for me in in Cincinnati or St. Louis or or some other places. So so to get noticed outside of my bubble, uh, especially as a commercial director, has has been great. And uh, and I'm constantly striving to 
you know, as a narrative filmmaker to, to break outside of the Nashville bounds. And listen, I love Nashville. I'm glad, you know, there's a, I've got a lot of fans in Nashville, but, uh, you know, you want to constantly raise your game and, and jump up to the next level or, or as I always say, level up. So how are you overcoming some of these obstacles? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I always thought that if you, that if you just make good stuff, eventually it gets out there and people discover it. Um, and I've found that that's not the case. And, and it's frustrating because, you know, I've won a bunch of awards and I've, gone on to compete at international festivals and made it in, in the top films. And uh, I won best director internationally at the 48 back in 2015 for contrary to likeness. And that was a huge feat because there were five or 6,000 films made that year. And, and they made, they said I was best director. That was really, really cool. Mm -hmm. But, but where does that translate? And that's been the biggest thing is, is, you know, breaking out of that. And so I, you know, as a narrative director, I don't know that I've fully broken out. I mean, I, I like I said, I've got some accolades and I've, uh, there's some people in LA that kind of know what's going on and there's some interesting things, but I'm constantly finding myself hitting that glass ceiling that I'm trying to constantly search for the jackhammer or the sledgehammer to smash through it. And I feel like other versions of you was a great step toward that. And we're still trying to get distribution with that and, and, and move that forward. And I'm hoping that will be a, a, a game changer and more people will see that. But now it's done and the process is going to serve itself out. And so now my job is to write the next one and make the next one and write the next one and make the next one and just keep trying to up my game. Uh, which leads into kind of my, my last challenge I feel like I've overcome was moving from a hobbyist to a professional director. So almost exactly two years ago, I cut all ties with my, with my past life. I was a graphic designer mm -hmm. and I basically stopped doing graphic design and, and moved into full-time directing. So it's been two years. You were a very good Do graphic designer as well. Yeah. I mean, I was all right. Um, I, I, luckily I still use it, uh, when I do my, my treatments and things like that. So it's, it's not a skill that has lost me and it, or that I've lost. And it's also a skill that I think serves directing, you know, with, uh, the visual language of, of how are our, our end credits going to work and, um, you know, all that stuff, it all kind of ties together. So Two years ago when we started pre-production on other versions of you and had an October uh, day to shoot, I pulled the plug and I went full-time. And last year was the hardest year financially of, of my life, really, uh, since I graduated college. And this year has been much better, but it's been – it's tough. You know, it's a tough road and it was a big step to take and, I, you know – my wife supports me and, and we've, we didn't lose our house last year and our kids still ate and here we are. Yeah. That, um, that, that kind of is a nice segue into the next question, which is what is the biggest challenge you're facing right now? 
You know, once again, I've got a few that I want to touch on because I think they're all kind of interrelated. Right now, the biggest challenge is, is getting our feature film, getting distribution, getting it sold, uh, paying our amazing investors back, uh, rewarding the cast and crew for all of their years of hard work. We, we worked on that film for three years and just to, I want it to get out there. So our actors and our, all the crafts people can, so the world can see their work. Cause it's, it's a beautiful film with some, uh, wonderful performances and I want to get it out there. So that, that's the one that constantly is nagging at the back of my head. Right, uh, right. The one that's more in my face every day is paying the bills, finding that next commercial gig or trying to get that next feature film funded so we can you know, move into the next space of that. So th those are, those are really, you know, and, and if I can get that next feature film funded, then maybe I can, you know, I need, I want to focus on it right now. I'm, I'm constantly scrapping to, to put commercial stuff together which is amazing. And I love it. I actually love making commercials and doing those sorts of projects, you know, but, but I think to be a full-time director in the, in the na narrative film space, I need to fully dedicate myself to that. And right now, if I am not working, I am either in pre-production, post-production, or I'm just calling people and making, uh, making meetings to just like, Hey, what work do you have? I'm trying to find something for October and, uh, you know, and just constantly on the hustle. So I love that though. That's, yeah, that's great. And, and, um, going along the lines of some of the action you take to address your challenges. Um, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and, and who did they come from? My path to becoming a director is kind of a strange one. I didn't go to film school. I, I, like I said, I come from graphic design and I discovered film. I've always loved movies. I've always loved film. I've always been a, a connoisseur and, and, a, and a lover of the art. And I go to the theater as much as possible, always have. And then I, uh, my degree is in creative writing. And so I actually wrote a couple novels before I even made my first film. Mm -hmm. and I made a film with the 48 hour film project. Cause I had some buddies that were making them and I thought, well, I want to do that too. So made a film and kind of caught the bug, but it took four years of making films before I said, and I even won the, you know, the third one I made, I even won best film. Mm. And so it took it. And then, but it was, it wasn't until the fourth one that I made that I was like, why am I only making these once a year? Like I should make movies. I love this. <laughs> and I still had no idea what I was doing. I was very lucky so often to just happen in, you know, the, the storytelling is, it was something that I, that I naturally loved, but it was the finding the crew and, and involving the visuals and, and, and working with great actors and just, you know, that whole thing. And I was like, why am I not doing this all the time? So so because of the way I came into making films, I didn't have a mentor. I had, I really had nobody giving me advice, Oh wow! you know, and I was just learning. I was just discovering stuff. I was trying things and 
um, you know, I, I had some some great producers that would, you know, kind of nudge me here, nudge me there, and uh, and and be you know great teammates, and we would work through problems together. But it wasn't like I I've ever sat down with a feature filmmaker who has you know made ten films and has worked with Hollywood starlets or you know really tough. Uh, A-list actors or whatever to just, you know, to give me any advice. Right. Um, so in commercial work, uh, I was about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I was talking to David Perry, who's one of the producers on other versions of you. And in the commercial space, he gave me some advice that some other people were kind of giving me at the same time that was focus on what your brand is going to be as a director and focus on one thing. And so about a year, a year and a half ago, I decided to start focusing solely on comedy and marketing myself as a comedy director uh, mm. in the commercial space, not in right. the narrative space. Narrative space, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do, I'll go with the money. And really in the, in the commercial space, I do the same thing. I don't always just do comedy, but a lot of the times I will get a gig because I'm a comedy director. Um, so that was, that was big and that, that actually... I got started getting more work because of that marketing, which was which was cool. And then the other thing, and this is this is just such general advice, but I've heard it over and over and over and over again, and I am fully ready to take heed mm -hmm. and fully implement this advice into my life, which I don't know that I've I've done so up to this point, and that is make genre films with recognizable stars. Mm -hmm. And I heard that advice from everybody who buys and sells movies. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, that is the, the, when we're trying to sell our movie, we're getting, well, man, we really liked it, but you know, we can't, can't fully nail down the genre and there's just not an A or B list talent in there that everybody knows that we can put on a poster. that's going to sell the movie in Europe or in China or even in America, you know, and, um, but we really love the movie. We just don't fully know how to do whatever, you know? And so, and we heard, I heard that on my first feature film as well. And I thought we had gotten a little closer in this and, and apparently we're still not there. And now I don't ever want to make another feature film again, unless it's a total passion project, unless it's got a very distinct genre and a, a star that we can bank the thing on. Cause I want to continue to level up. And I don't know that I'll be able to do that by just making films with my friends in Nashville, which I love doing. But uh, I, my family deserves my time. And I have spent so much time on other versions of you, which I have loved. But I also have missed my kids, part of their growing up, because uh, – and I didn't get paid for it very much, you know. And uh, that's something I can't do again. Right. And this is such a tough one. And there's such a balance there because, you know, Bonsai and, 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 and me and Nick, we really feel strongly that the star system has been dead for probably a decade unless you have uh, the top 15 actors. Uh, so if you have The Rock, uh, go get The Rock. Right. So <laughs> but but if you're having a middle of the road star, you know, it, it's tough because you'll sell your movie, but will the movie do well? Right. Um, 
and, and we get the deal you want or will it get shelved? And, um, so we're really big on saying story always wins. And then from the sales standpoint, uh, you're, there is truth to putting a star on a poster and, and we've lived in that world and know what that's all about. You, oh, we can, this star is in it. Uh, we can sell that, but that is the kind of marketing you get when you have an independent film and you have a sales agent that just wants to be done with you uh, or sales to you. You see what I mean? So it's this really tough thing. Like if you were really trying hard to growth hack a movie or to market it in a unique way, you would market the story, not the star. And you would create a poster that was different and lived in its own world that didn't rely on the traditional star system to sell it. But because it's, it's a conundrum, right? Because it's an independent film, you're not going to get that from almost 99.99% of the people who want to push and market your movie. So right. it is tough. It is really tough. Um, I just find that to be, you know, it's the, it's like clickbait. Like we all agree that clickbait is bad for journalism and bad for headlines. Um, and I would say this as a journalism major and someone who did that for a little while, but you would also have to admit that, how else are you going to make money in a digital world? Right. So th- there right. is there is a balance somewhere. It takes a little bit more effort. It's harder to do, and yeah. it's a lot more risky. So yeah, that's that's really good feedback. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I you know, I, there's a there's a film that came out. I don't know mid mid aughts called I believe it was called The Fall. Starring Lee Pace, mm-hmm. and Love the director, yeah, yeah. So the director who did it, he was a big commercial director and would travel all around the world and make these really high end commercials while he was making the fall. And so he'd be like, "Hey, we're going to be in Morocco for a week making this commercial. So let's go ahead and spend an extra week out here, and let's get our let's get our main actors to come out, and we'll film a scene here." Mm-hmm. And you know it was a it was a really interesting way to make a film, and it was beautiful and big, and uh, you know narratively it maybe wandered a little bit and didn't fully hit home and feel cohesive. But I always think that if if I was if I was making good money as a commercial director, um, I could maybe then not have to worry about that stuff and maybe try to do a more creative approach, like you're talking about. I think what you have to have though in order to make that happen is you have to have a team behind you or beside you that will help carry that weight. Because as a director, you know, I, here's the thing. I want to write and direct and not that that stuff isn't important to me, obviously getting the film out there, but I want to find teammates that are going to do that for me and with me rather than me shouldering all of that weight. It's almost like, you know, I came up in bands and I was, I was the lead singer of a band way back in the day. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I, I had to do everything. I wrote the songs. I had to schedule the practices. I had to make the posters. I had to send out the email blasts. I had to make the website. I did everything. Mm-hmm. And what I'm looking for as a filmmaker is to not do everything, to find those teammates that can help do those things. So, you know, I, I am I am fully behind not going with the studio model if I can find the right 
tools and people to make those things happen. And I think with other versions of you, you know, uh, I've already spent seven years on it and I don't have the, the bandwidth and energy to spend another three years on it, doing all the posters and doing all of the mail outs and do, you know, doing all that stuff. And so I, that's kind of the conundrum I find myself in. Right. Uh, Audi- with, audience with discovery that. as well. So it's a big part of it because I think the evidence for the demise of the star system is watching how this generation would consume a SoundCloud musician before they would consume, I don't know, Keith Urban. Right. So, so that, and, and then that permeates into film as well, where, um, you know, uh, this generation might watch a show with Amanda Sings before they would watch a show with Amanda Siegfried. So there's, there's, um, there is an interesting shift happening and, and I, look, Maki, I lived your life. It's so funny. I had a singing group. Now I wasn't the lead singer, but I wrote the songs. I produced the songs. I did all the compositions. I did all the marketing. I did all the photo shoots. Um, at this time, email was a new thing. We, we had our, you know, I set up the email addresses along with my dad. Um, I, I paid and fronted uh, to, to burn all the CDs, all the covers, <laughs> get all the, the sleeve stuff printed. And um, I remember just learning a big lesson through that too, which was, it was it, money makes people different. And we were just straight hustlers back then, Maki. Like we would be on Broadway in downtown Nashville. We'd put a hat out and put like 15 of our own dollars in there. And we'd sing for four hours and right. rack up for the night and go spend it all on dumb stuff. Uh, <laughs> like right after that. But, <laughs> but we would also go sell these CDs. We'd sell them for, um, the price was always, was, was always fluid, right? So if you'd pay $10 for the CD, it cost $10. But if you wouldn't, we, it cost five. And if you wouldn't pay that, then it would cost three or whatever. Right, right. But the goal was to, to make the money back we'd spent. And I remember, you know, I would clearly state to these guys, hey, I fronted this, so let me make my money back first. And then we'll start to split this up, you know, four right. ways because there's four members in the group. But what, what, what you found out was, and what I found out was, is that if everybody's going out and hustling, right, and selling, so everybody's actually doing the work of selling, mm-hmm. it's, even though it's very clear and upfront that you ought to pay back the debt first, it hurts the morale of the team not to get paid to do the work. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so when they when they go out and sell all day and they're like, look, I did great. Well, we, we sold $200 for the CDs and they have to hand the cash over. Right. Um, That's it's tough. A, yeah, it's tough. It's a weird thing. And what I learned to do is I learned to say, you know what? Um, good job. We'll make this debt up. It's no big deal. Like our margins are really high. Take $25. And that's all you for the day. Yeah. And and it was and people would call me insane for that. Insane. But I realized that they sold more, they sold better. And mm-hmm. they got paid to go do the selling, even though they owed the money back. And we sold all those yeah. CDs plus some and I made all my money back. And and here's yeah. the crazy thing. It wasn't even good. <laughs> the C- we we so made funny. it we made the CD at EMI. Uh, on Music Row, and we worked with Brian Carter and and Greg Hill, and we had um, we had like 
all the songs were good. We just didn't do a good job performing them. So, mm-hmm. and they were looking at me as a producer and, um, yeah, it was, it was a great adventure, my friend, and taught me mm-hmm. a lot about, uh, the world in general. Uh, but, but moving along, this is about you, not yeah. about me. No, um, no, that's good. Let me ask you this. If you could provide filmmakers with one piece of advice, what would it be now? One, one piece of advice, Chris? Just one piece is that of, all you want? That's it. Just one I'm, piece. I've got a lot. I've got a lot. I've, I wrote down a whole <laughs> lot. Um, no, but let's see. Okay. No, no, no. One piece of advice. Um, one piece of advice. When I do a home run here, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm a professor at Belmont an adjunct and I teach directing there and I, I'm only taught for a year and I'm about to start my third semester. And teaching students has really helped me think through a lot about my approach, about, uh, you know, a lot of the times I discourage people from being a filmmaker because it's hard. Mm-hmm. And, and I love it. Like, I love, love, love it. I wake up every day thinking about what I'm working on, whether it be a commercial or a film. And I love it. And if I didn't love it, I would quit immediately. Mm. Because the amount of work that you have to put in to be successful. And, and I wouldn't even consider myself successful. You know, I've, I'm, I'm able to, keep the ship afloat and I'm making, I've made several films that have won awards and, and whatnot, but you know, I, I'm not even close to where I hope to be and I'm constantly driving and hustling. And so I think my one piece of advice is you have to put in the work. You have to put in the work. Mm. Um, I was, I was having a conversation with, uh, one of my favorite DPs, Micah Sims, who shot other versions of you. Yeah, he's brilliant. And and we were this was in 2012. And we were driving somewhere. We had just shot something. And and I said, Micah. And I was talking to myself very much when I said this, but I said, Micah, if you want to be a master. If you want to be a DP who is shooting feature films every year and is making commercials that are on network television and you want to make a career and a living out of this, you have to put in the time. That means you have to watch stuff. You have to study. You have to practice. You have to shoot stuff even when you're not getting paid for it. You have to put in the time. And I saw Micah grow exponentially over the next few years. And and in 2013, he bought a red and he just continued. He shoots probably 250 days a year right now. And, um, and is just working like crazy. And, you know, and even I'll tell my students, you know, you, the pre, the amount you do in pre-production saves you in production and the amount you can do in production helps you in post-production. And it's all, a giant machine and everything you do adversely reflect, reflects and affects everything else that you do. So that's the big thing. You can't just 
write a three-page script and then shoot it in the corner of a living room with three camera angles and hope that that is going to be the thing that gets you discovered in Hollywood and you're going to be able to move to L.A. and direct the next Jurassic Park. It just right. doesn't work that way. So what you have to do is you have to put in the work. You have to do the work. And, I, and that's one of the reasons I always direct people to the 48-hour film project because you can hone your craft throughout the year. You're honing, you're honing, you're writing short films, you're trying this, you're trying this. You know, you're really kind of uh, testing things out. Then when you get to do the 48, you can up your game because you can bring in a higher quality of people because you, you can't pay them as part of the rules of the 48. And you can get everybody to come all in in one weekend and it has the opportunity to screen somewhere. And then it has the opportunity to win awards and has the opportunity to screen at the National Film Festival and screen at Filmapalooza. And you can go out and go farther. Um, and that is such a great, a great place to do that. And uh, the 48, by the way, is coming out uh, in August, uh, mid-August, I think August 14th. And so I don't know when this podcast will come out, but it's such a great opportunity for, for filmmakers to do. And that's just in Nashville. They're, every major city, uh, for the most part in the world, has, has the 48 in, in right. some weekend or another. So all of it, though, is, is about the work. And, and I'm going to go a step farther and talk about this. And this is just the reality of, of being a, a, a filmmaker who wants to be successful. I typically don't hang out with friends. Like I have lunch or dinner with a friend, maybe unless I'm on a shoot, typically five to six times a year. Like that, that's it. And I've got some scripts that I've written 20 drafts of that will never see the light of day. But that work of writing those drafts helped hone me as a filmmaker and moved me and to, to write this thing. And then that led to the discovery of this thing. And, and then this helped me to meet that person. And then I wrote, I made a short film that led me to make, uh, to meet this person, you know, and it's all the work It all snowballs. And so one of the things I always talk about to my students and other filmmakers is the snowball effect. And that's where you, you work really hard on a thing and then hopefully that notices and gets some traction and then it works on the next thing, but you got to put the work in. Yeah. I, I think that is the differentiator for a lot of people is what is hard work to you might be a day off for somebody else. And then you have to kind of find out what the expectation of the market is and then, and try to meet it if you can. Um, but you mentioned students. So I'm, curious uh, about uh, the answer to this question, which is uh, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? I've got a nice list for this one, Chris. So here we go. <laughs> First of all, they think they're good right off the bat. They think the, they've made one short film and they are amazing and they are now ready to make a feature film and, um, you know, conquer the world. Right. That happens. That totally happens, but it's rare. It's so, so rare. So that's the first thing. Like I, I constantly try to destroy the egos of the filmmakers, my student filmmakers and just say, listen, like you have talent. That's probably why you're here, but you have to story is, is the, the, the ruler of all things. 
And if you cannot tell a good story in three, five, seven, ten minutes, how in the heck do you expect to tell a good story in an hour and a half? Or as a series, if you want to do series, you know, episodic. So that's that's the first thing. Second thing is they don't put in the work, you know, Uh, whether creative or business, they're not putting in the work. They're not looking at best practices. They're not looking at time management. Uh, I don't do it as much, and I'm trying to get back into the habit. I, th- this last week, I've, I've actually been back in, but for years and years and years, it was mainly before I had children, I would get up at 5 o'clock every day, and from 5 to 8, that was a time, a dedicated time of writing, and that was part of my craft. And then I, you know, then I would go. I would have to go to work. I would. I, sometimes you have to work a job. You can't right. just think that you're going to be able to do it. Which leads to my next point, which is some people go full time in the film and commercial too soon. You know, if you're especially if you're going to be a director or a cinematographer or something that's one of the key uh, people, gaffer, uh, production designer, you know, whatever it is, you need a body of work to support what you're doing. I made films and commercials for nine years before going full time. I I don't know. I can't even remember how many films I had under my belt, but I I had made at least 16 films before I decided to go full time. Wow. That was, that was one feature and, you know, 15 shorts or whatever it was. Um, and countless commercials. I had already done a bunch of commercials up to that point. And some of them were kind of paying some and some were, you know, kind of spec commercials. But, you know, um, I, I had a successful job in insurance doing graphic design. And then one day I, when we made other versions of you, I finally had to make the move to go full time because I, I finally had more paying film work than my vacation days could hold. So I had to just take the leap. Right. But it was, it was, I had to deliberate, I deliberated over it for months and months and months because it was terrifying. You know, and, and, and here's the thing if you're a really young filmmaker, go for it. Make the mistakes, go out and do it. But don't expect to be helming, uh, you know, a, a crew of 40 people uh, after you've just made one short film. You know, like you've got to put in the work and show that you, uh, I've got it. And, and sometimes you have to work your way up. You, you start in the AD department or uh, you're an editor or, or whatever it is, and you have to work your way into that. Um, I went a very different route where I just started directing and writing, and I just made a bunch of stuff. Uh, and people finally started trusting me, and I, I got more people involved. And I once again, that snowball, you know. So Right. Um, on, the, uh, on the business side. Or is that kind of a, a, a combination yeah, of both? It's a combination. And, well, and I've got a couple more other things. The other big thing is um, a big creative mistake is that people don't understand story. Oh. I, I see yes. this. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have watched so many student films and so many 48s um, where people just don't get story. And it's one of the things that, uh, you know, Belmont, we teach. That's the one of the, we have numerous classes dedicated to story. And in my directing class, we talk about story and it's, it's tough. I mean, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, if it was, then everybody would be telling amazing stories, but it's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't understand story, then you're not going to get a good cast and crew. And ultimately you're not going to make a good film, you know? So, so true. I think another thing that people do, and it's interesting, I think there's a, on the business side, there's no right or wrong approach. 
a huge part of it is who you know. So getting out there and networking and, and meeting people and but you got to have something to network with, right? You can't just go out with you know, I've got a I've got a seven play screenplay. Well, what what have you made? Well, I've not made anything. Well, go make something and show me what you can do and then we can talk or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, but but, but business-wise you know, it's so much of that is about networking. So much of it is about who you know. So much of it is is about. I've heard some filmmakers. There's a filmmaker, Jeremy. I can't remember his last name. He directed Blue Ruin and Green Room. Mm-hmm. And so when he did Blue Ruin, he mortgaged his house. He put a hundred thousand dollars on credit card debt. He he did everything he could, and he carried the weight of the film on his shoulder. And it, it was quasi successful. He made his money back. He got some buzz. That is the exception to the rule. Some people can do that. Some people can't. It's I've I've talked to some some filmmakers like we put twenty five thousand dollars on credit cards and we made this film and and I told him and I watched the film and I was like, well, I I'm sorry, I don't think it's that good. Right. There's no story and this and that. And, and I said, I'm sorry. And they, and they got mad at me. They were mad that I had said that to them. <laughs> well, we spent $25,000. We hired a cinematographer. I'm like, well, did you vet the cinematographer? Because it's not shot very well. You know, it's like – and I'm trying I'm, – I'm, I hate to be that. But at the same time, to be successful in here, there's got, you've got to understand the zeitgeist of what is, is clicking – you have to kind of future cast what is going to be clicking in a year or two from now, especially if you're doing a feature film. You have to hope that you're going to hit. Even when you're doing your casting, you got to hope that you're going to uh, hire an actor who might be on the, their upward uh, you know, trajectory and hopefully isn't going to say something stupid to sabotage your film in, in the year or two that it takes before it to get out. But, of course, you can't, you can't plan for that. You can't so, plan that. But, but I, yeah. I would say Nick and I relate to – what you just said so much. And it's one of the toughest parts of our job. It really is because we love independent filmmakers and we um, go out and sit with them and talk with them. But then when it comes time to have to evaluate their story and then give them tough news, it's really difficult. It's really yeah. difficult because that's why I laughed when you said they got mad at you. They got mad mm-hmm. because they spent $25,000 on something that's not going to work. And they, in their heart, right. know it. And yep. they fooled themselves into believing that, that they don't know it. Yeah. And to hear someone credible say that back to them, it's a little bit painful. And yeah. that is the thing is, is, you know, Nick and I, we're not an investment bank. Right. So we right. really have to pick the very best story we can pick. And we always 100%. we always go on story and execution. Can the crew execute it? And is the story great? Yeah. And if your story doesn't beat out the next person's story, then it's probably going to be a no for us. But that doesn't mean it, it, the response sometimes Maki is, oh, you're telling us to fuck off. No, we're not. Right. We're not telling right. you that. We want to work with you. We want to work with yeah. you in the future. We have services that could help. We have other things yeah. that we can do. But yeah. in terms of investing in this, we have to make a prudent decision with our funds, which are limited, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. And, 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 oh, well, I didn't ask you for coverage. Well, we have to review the story to make a decision, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so I, yeah. think, I think the funny thing is, is, is there is a, a thought out there with, with new filmmakers, um, 
our first time filmmakers that, oh, the investors don't care about the art. They're just going to throw the money at you. No, if the project looks good, that's not true. Yeah, uh, that's, so not that's, true. that's not, and especially not with us. I mean, we're really yeah. comb through your project, and then we're yeah. Gonna, and you guys are definitely story story oriented, and you guys are, you know, you're you're great creative uh, collaborators, and you know, and it's uh, I I wonder, and my experience, I have no experience on this, but I wonder how rare or how uh, you know common that is. I don't, I don't know. I, we try to do things a little differently and it's, it's still moving and growing. So we're excited about it. Um, this kind of leans back on Maki, like the, the teacher in you, which I think you're a really great teacher. And so this might provide a really interesting outcome, but, and you can pick, now this is up to you. You can pick director or writer. It's up to you. Yeah. But if you had one month to teach someone how to do either, uh, what would be the first three things you would teach them? So they have to go from zero to competent in one month. What would be the first three things you would teach them? Hmm. I wonder. I'm trying. I'm trying to choose my path. Often, our, our guests often do this. They they choose, <laughs> they ponder for a minute and choose their path. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because they both require something. They both require the discipline of knowing, understanding story, you know. So, um, <laughs> I'll say director. Let's go director. Let's do it. Since that's what I, I teach at Belmont. So, first thing would be I have a month, right? So, in that month, they would have to watch 30 films. 30 feature films and I would maybe curate a list for them. Uh, number two. And then, and then we would discuss each of those films and talk, break them down as part of the, as part of the, the craft. Right. Number two, they would have to be on set with me, you know, quite a bit. And I would, my hope would be that I could, show them certain things that I'm doing. The tricky thing about that is, Chris, is every set is different. Every project is different. The way you approach every single thing is different. So as a director, I just did some episodic stuff for a, for a group up in, in St. Louis last week. It was really fun. Uh, It was kind of campy and, and ridiculous and over the top and, had a great time. The way I directed that, you know, all of the all of the core stuff was in place, but the way I directed that was a little different than the thing that I did, you know, last month. Mm-hmm. And it's very different than how I do feature films, you know. But a lot of it comes down to the organization and preparation of figuring out the schedule. Uh, if you have the the beauty of having an AD. You've worked that schedule out with the AD. Uh, if you don't have that, then a lot of times as a director, you are now the AD. And so you are building that with the producer, getting that schedule together. And, and then being learning to be flexible inside that schedule. There's all sorts of little things in there that you can tell people about. But until they experience it, until they experience the panic of the AD coming up to you and saying, we're an hour behind, you're going to have to lose something. And then you go, okay, let me see what we've got. 
Um, okay, let's let's lose this and this, or let's bump these to the end. If we can catch up, we'll catch up these at the end. You know, and just having those instincts. And that's the thing. You can't teach instinct. You you get the instinct by being in it. Uh, I'm I'm currently watching through Ron Howard's masterclass on directing, and it's, and I it's just, fascinating. I, I just watched that one. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, and, and I'm and I'm watching through it, and so much, where I'm just like, yep, yeah, uh-huh, yep, yep, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, some things he says, he said something like, "I think anybody can direct." And I fundamentally disagree with Ron Howard on that. I think <laughs> feels like one of those lines he said. I, I, I heard him say it too. It feels like one of those yeah. lines you say to to make sure you don't lose the class. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I felt. Because I'm like, I tell my students, I say, not everybody can direct. It's just, not everybody can act. Not everybody can be a composer. Not everybody can be a DP. Some things you can learn, but to be a true master craftsman. I think about this. I heard this on a podcast the other day. There are more professional NFL players than there are professional screenwriters. Yeah, that's true. I think there's only 1,600 working, getting paid screenwriters. Yeah, it's 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 crazy the number. Yeah, and there's like 2,500 or 3,000 professional NFL right. players. I think of the 1,600 so, like a, in the 90th percentile or higher are, are all men as well. Right, right. Which is changing, which is great. It is, you know that there's a, that there's a, there's a, a thirst for that, you know. And but yeah, I, so I think I, I don't think everybody can direct. And so part of the thing that I look for, especially with my students, is I want to see. I'm not going to spend. I don't want to really nurture and hone and help craft someone who isn't going to be who doesn't have that whatever that magic spark is. Uh, but what I will do and what I do in my classes, if I don't see that, I want them to understand if they want to be a producer or they want to be a cinematographer, they want to do something. I want them to understand what the director goes through. And so that's part of my, my teaching is to talk about this is, this is how a director prepares. And, and if you're not going to be a director, you need to understand this. And if you are going to be a director, you have to understand that everything is on your shoulders to some extent. And, and so I, and I, I feel like I've wandered way off your question, but to kind of come back and, and wrap it up, uh, the last thing would be, you know, I would, I would give them opportunities, hopefully, to, to show, show something. After they're like 25 days in, like I would put them in a scenario where we can, we can watch them direct and I could give them notes. And it's one of the things we do in, in class. I don't get to do it as much in class because of the way the class is built, but I'm trying to work on ways to do that to where I can, instead of just giving a list of feedback where I can say, Hey, let's pause right here. Okay. This is what you did. Maybe consider trying this next time, you know, and, 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 and nurturing that, those instincts. So there we go. So to sum it up, if you had to list out the three, list out the three for us, just for clarity's <laughs> sake. Uh, watch movies, mm-hmm. uh, mentor on site, and then I would give them an opportunity to to direct something. Probably not for money or you know, uh, but give them an opportunity to direct something and critique them as they go. It, it, there you go. That's that's way off the top of my head, Chris. I don't know that that's exactly what I would do, but I think. In order for someone to understand what a director does, they have to 
see. They have to experience. They have to walk in the shoes or at least beside them and go, oh, so you're you're casting and you are looking at locations and you're doing pre-production uh, boards and you're working on scheduling and you're looking at wardrobe and you're looking at production design and you're making decisions about uh, – what they're going to have here and what they're going to have here and what they're going to do here. And you're, you're talking about lunch schedules. You're talking about union or non-union, you know, that's all just in pre-production. And right. if you're working on story as well, then you're like, you've got notes from producers, notes from executive producers, notes from actors, you know, and you're working through all that stuff. So there's a lot that happens just in pre-production and then you get to production, you know, and then, and then you got the whole nother thing and then you're in post-production and it's a completely different creature. Yeah. It takes the right kind of person not to go mad. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I always say it's a it's almost a 50-50 left brain right brain if you believe in that kind of thing but that split of creative and organizational. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I um I always marvel at at how much can get done by one person or a small group of people. Uh oh, yeah. and then in the in the micro and then at how much can get done by everyone in the crew and cast and the macro. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's yep. part of why I love the process so much. Yes, indeed. Yep. Um, which creatives do you most admire and want to emulate? And what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart? I love Edgar Wright. I love his, the way he, he does camera, the way he works with actors I love his editing so much. I, I think he is just the way he works with his editors and the way that their projects come out is it's brilliant. He's mm-hmm. probably he's my favorite and uh, he's the one that I can kind of, you know, he, he's always got comedy even when he's not doing a, a pure comedy piece. So I love that about him. I love David Fincher's meticulous approach to the craft I feel he's maybe a little too meticulous, but I do love hearing stories about how he does stuff. Right. So those are probably the two that I look at the most and say, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a a great thing to strive for, you know, and, and and go for. I love it, man. I love it. I agree with both of those, uh, especially Edgar Wright. And, uh, Wow, Maki, we have come to the final question. All right. Um, that's, that rolled right up on me. Um, there it is. In your opinion, what are the top three online resources for helping directors or writers? These are very simple, Chris, but incredibly effective. And two of them are owned by the same company. One of them is YouTube. There are so many incredible resources on YouTube. There are people who break films down and, and the methods of, of directors and writers. Uh, so you've got, you've got every frame of painting, uh, Royal ocean film society, lessons from a screenplay. Uh, uh, I'm, there's two or three others that I subscribe to that I, I love as well. And then you can you can find countless short films on there. There's just so many great short films. And, and I'm going to add to that because it uses YouTube and Vimeo. But um, uh, short of the week is is a great resource if you're if you want to make shorts. 
just to kind of see because they break it down and in, into horror and comedy and drama mm-hmm. and all these things. So, uh, but it, it all comes kind of back to YouTube and, and just this amazing open source that we have out there of just content. The second thing is Google Docs. I use this every day, several times a day. It's a, it's a great collaborative tool. I can whip up a, a Google Doc and I can share it with someone. And if we're both in it and we're on the phone, we can live see each other type. I haven't done that quite as much. But when I, when I had writing partners, I, I would do that with them and we could write through stuff. I, I don't do that as much anymore. I, I, I'm more of a solo writer. But that is a, that is a great collaboration tool. Uh, you you know you've got spreadsheets that you can do on the fly. So if you're talking to a producer, looking at budgets, you can just look at all that stuff. You can say, oh hey, hey, have you considered maybe we want to spend a little more money on this so we can do ABC, those types of things. Right there, you can be in different cities, different countries, and still have those things there. Right. And then the last thing is you know I've just discovered I'm still just lo- using it, but it's fresh in my mind is Masterclass. You know, there's a whole bunch of things on there to, you know, Aaron Sorkin, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, uh, Spike Lee. There's a whole bunch of people. I, I have just started it like three days ago, but it seems pretty legit. There's some really great information. It, you're not going to get that fine tuning on some of it, but you're going to get a re- at least with the Ron Howard one, you're going to get this great broad idea of what it means to be a director and look at the process. I don't think though that you can fully understand I didn't fully understand what a director it took me making numerous films to fully understand the the width and the depth and the and the, the height of what it means to be a director and even what it means to be a good director and I'm still trying to figure out what it means to be a great director well, those are three fantastic recommendations and um, and I'm just diving into uh, masterclass as well. And YouTube is so endless that mm. when you think you're in deep, you're, you're still not deep enough, but, um, yeah. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media and the internet. If they want to learn more about, uh, the miraculous Maki Dap. Mm. All you have to do is Google Maki Dap, M O T K E D A P P. Or you can just go to Maki.net and on Matki.net, I've got links to every single one of my social. I'm most active on Instagram. I sometimes don't know what to say on Facebook uh, because it's just a weird place. And I don't do Twitter <laughs> as often as I want. Uh, and then uh, here's an interesting thing. I use Letterboxd, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Yep. And I, every movie I see, I do at least a quick little review of it and talk through it. And I rate everything. Every single film I've ever seen, for the most part, has been rated on there by year. And then I have my top 125 on there as well. So you can kind of get a peek in, into my brain and things that I like. Yeah, I have seen and, and I've bookmarked your letterbox before. I don't know if you know that, but I have. And I've looked at it, went through it, uh, enjoyed it. And it kind of inspired me to do my own and then like like um many things in in life uh competing priorities and i never did it yeah but i am going to circle back and i think it's actually valuable for uh the people that we work with just to go and be able to say oh what is chris like well but not only that it is a great tool for me because if i'm having a little bit of writer's block or i'm trying to figure out 
how maybe to how to do a shot list for a scene. I'll go back to my letterbox and I'll look at my favorite films or I'll I'll try to remember what did I see that had this and this and this or when I'm doing casting, you know, and, and we're we're trying to figure out casting for for the next film and we're going okay, we want to find a, a an up and comer in TV that's ready to break into film or blah 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 blah. I will often go to letterboxd and, and just kind of peruse and kind of see. And then another great uh, reason for a look at letterboxd is if you're trying to figure out what you want to watch, you can go and, and just hear a bunch of people who just love film because letterboxd is composed of people who love movies. Yeah. So you can go and see what people think. And a lot of times if it's got a less than a, less than a three on letterboxd, I'm just not going to waste my time on it. And I'll read some reviews and I'll kind of see are people just being overly critical or whatever. But it also helps me to kind of see, what this interesting community is thinking about certain actors or certain directors or certain genres. And so it's, it's a really interesting tool that I really like. Yeah. The, the, uh, sort of net, uh, value you get from it as an input, as a filing system and as a discovery tool really makes it unique. Um, yeah, I'm going to make this happen, Maki. So, so when it's done, I'll send you the link. And please do, <laughs> please do. You'll let me know. Uh, I love if it. I, if I love some shitty movies, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Maki, this is this is fantastic as usual. I always love talking to you, man. And I, I cannot thank Same you enough for uh, thank you. I cannot uh, thank you enough for for joining us on, uh, on the podcast today. Glad to be part of it, and uh, I can't wait to. Here it comes out. Best of luck to you. Absolutely. Talk soon. Hey, thanks, Chris. All right. Be good. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects, social media, and transcripts of this interview, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash podcast. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged. And thank you for listening.